to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. I'm your host, Major Tom Fox, Assistant Professor of International Affairs and Fellow with the Soch Research Lab in the Department of Social Sciences at West Point. I'm really excited to bring you this episode and offer some summer reading recommendations for what little bit of summer remains. Our guest is August Cole, co-author with Pete Singer of Ghost Fleet and the new book Burn In, and a fellow at the Krulak Center for Innovation and Creativity at Marine Corps University, and senior fellow at the Scowcroft Center on Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. I'm a huge fan of his work because he uses fiction to help us imagine possible futures, surface underlying assumptions, and think about big questions at the intersection of politics, economics, and technology. A perfect way to simultaneously escape and keep your brain engaged this summer. Without further ado, here's our conversation. We're really lucky to have with us today August Cole, the co-author of the new book, Burn In, which we are recommending as our summer reading for our audience this summer. Thanks so much for being with us today, August. Uh, it's great to be uh, connected virtually. August joined us a couple of years back for our last senior conference in which we studied the emerging environment in the Indo-Pacific, and he caught our attention because he and Pete Singer's last book, Ghost Fleet, uh, was a novel of the, the next world war and really focused on U.S.-China competition. Me, myself, being a China watcher, was a huge fan of Ghost Fleet, recommending it uh, to everyone. I was going to read uh, their new book, regardless of what it was. But it, it did surprise me a little bit that this new book, Burn In, which is a novel of the real robotic revolution, in its focus was much more uh, about domestic politics than about international relations or foreign policy. Uh, my first question for you, August, is what motivated that switch to a, a kind of a different topic area going away from that international relations and looking at some really big questions at the intersection of technology uh, and politics here? Even with Ghost Fleet, we certainly had, I think, a real strong appreciation for the really dynamic aspects that go into you know, conflict in the future. And, and certainly politics, economics, and technology are, are as much a part of that as, as you know, doctrine and strategy. And so in you know, looking at the kinds of things we could have written about when we got done with Ghost Fleet, you know, of course, there's a sequel as an option, for example. But we really felt that you know, the way people were talking about the disruption from artificial intelligence, from everyday robotics, from shifts in data privacy, that the conversation was akin to what we encountered in the China debates of, say, 2011, uh, 2012, when we began the Ghost Fleet project. And we really wanted to do something similar in the sense of being able to get people connected to a set of themes and ideas, slightly educate them even in the guise of this you know, techno thriller, so that they're able to make better decisions, understand what's going on. Because uh, unlike, I think, some of the big you know, motor movement, kinetic aspects of like the ghost fleet story, you know, much of the technology that is going to be reshaping society, the way we work, you know, how we raise children, the way we you know, experience our political lives in, uh, in America is going to be going to be transformed by, by, by tech we can't see. You know, the software is invisible and effectively, and that is going to be a driving force in all facets of society, particularly when it's paired with the, the kinds of artificial intelligence breakthroughs we're seeing you know, right now all around us, whether it's natural language processing or neural network breakthroughs that rely on new chipsets, like this is an ongoing experiment. And that ref is reflected to some extent in the title. You know, burn-in is when you're taking a technological system, right, and, and trying to kind of push it to the breakpoint. And, and in effect, America is in the midst of a burn-in for this, this wave of technologies like AI and robotics, but we almost aren't acknowledging that that's underway. A fantastic point. And I really appreciate 
thinking about that in light of what's happened since the book came out. I read it, uh, an early version of it. I was lucky to read it before it came out in April. Uh, and that was uh, before we had uh, a real understanding, I think, of exactly where the pandemic would go. Uh, and then we've seen uh, more recently um, some, some other kind of upheaval in the country with the mass protests uh, about race and policing uh, after the death of George Floyd. And given all that kind of change in the country uh, and this kind of tumultuous political moment we find ourselves in, in an election year, there are almost elements of uh, this dystopian future that you uh, and PW Singer write about that are coming true a little bit before or elements of it that are, are truer than we you might have expected them to be uh, when you wrote about the uh, further into the, the future, which for me brings in a question of kind of who the book is targeted towards. I think you have a very captive audience in the national security community, certainly in the military community who are looking forward to this book. But to me, it's this book seems like it's got a much broader audience. I mean, people should be reading Ghost Fleet, all about that. Um, informed citizens should know about foreign policy and should care about foreign policy. But the questions around technology that are reforming our everyday life, the burn-in you reference, seem like they would be applicable to that bigger audience. Did you guys specifically go for that broader audience with this? Or, or were you more aiming still in that kind of policy community or national security community? There's an interesting almost like step back way that, that you know, Pete and I have looked at the kind of fiction projects we're, we're doing. And, you know, if you go back to, to Ghost Fleet being an experiment, you know, does this work? Does this form of useful fiction in the guise of a novel? You know, I've been calling it Ficint, this kind of uh, collision of fiction intelligence. Does it have relevance in the national security community? And I think the answer, you know, since 2015, you know, not just from Ghost Sleep, but other examples, Army Mad Scientist Project, Art of the Future Warfare Project at the Atlantic Council have said yes. And, and yet, you know, as, as a writer, you're looking to connect with readers in the most authentic way possible. And, you know, there is a way to think about the kind of creative things that interest you and excite you, too. And you know, somebody like, say, Tom Clancy, you know, stayed in kind of a certain uh, lane, you know, throughout the course of his career, especially once he landed on Jack Ryan as a, as a hero. And, and yet somebody like Michael Crichton, for example, had taken every book as a new opportunity to kind of go on a different journey. And it's that latter kind of Crichton-like approach, I think, that Pete and I decided was really going to reflect what we're interested in, but also speak to this idea of useful fiction being something that could be applied, to your point, within the defense and security community, but also in the case of burn-in, read broadly so that people who are in the technology sector who are explicitly working on AI algorithms have a better appreciation for the larger kind of holistic impact that this technology will have. It can be read by people who are in healthcare wondering about how automation is going to change their work, which for a long time has been fairly traditionally bounded, even as it incorporates new technology. I mean, my wife is a physician and still carries a pager that would not be, uh, you know, out of out of place in like, you know, the mid 90s. So, you know, those sorts of paradoxes, I think, are found throughout society where we have one foot in the past and one foot in the future. And a book like Burn In helps, I think, bridge that. The idea of a story being broadly understood and even, let's say, accepted by various communities, I think, is critical to this form of conveying information that we think is really important. And, you know, nonfiction books, of course, do this ably, especially, though, when they're written with narratives and where you follow a character who's got to overcome something. You know, Eric Larson does this really well, for example, in his military themed books. The way that a book like Burn In, which is in that techno thriller you know, box, but can be considered science fiction, could be considered almost a police procedural, you know, because of the 
the role that our FBI agent you know has in that story and tracking down a essentially a, a bad guy uh, using her robot partner. But at the same time, you know, we're, we have sections in there where we explore these potentially catastrophic vulnerabilities in American society that aren't just about hacking, but are about actually the, the breaking of the social contract. So, you know, when you were reading the book in the spring and then it you know, came out in June, you know, we were at a point where many of the scenes that we were seeing play out in Lafayette Square, the Lincoln Memorial, to us were really haunting because we had spent many, many months uh, well, really years living in this kind of dystopian 2030s Washington, D.C. And to see it land in our on our screens was was a real shock. And and I think that's not because, you know, we had the special gift of any kind of insight, but really just like we, we could analyze some of the trend lines and look at for some of the signals that maybe weren't being appreciated or talked about. And it just felt like the world that we were describing was a far off future. But I think it was a really good reminder, too, of how fast the future can come at us in ways we don't expect. And, and COVID, you know, to this, I think, point specifically, has ushered in sweeping transformations in automation and the use of AI-driven technologies to reshape how we work, how we raise our children, how we establish our place in society, how we advocate for a more just and fair world. This is the kind of pressure rise situation that America's in, which is, I think, unique, you know, in its arc, you know, maybe 1968, you know, there are other distinct moments, I feel like, where we have a kind of before and after period of time. And certainly 2020 feels like one. And I would have probably expected that what, you know, we are seeing now might have happened in 2025 or 2028. You know, it didn't feel like a today thing in, in the conceptualization of, of the story. It really did feel like something that was in the future. But but that's how this works. You know, we get surprised all the time by big things that are right in front of us. And whether it's dealing with systemic racism, whether it's dealing with economic injustice, whether it's dealing with uh, political systems not responding to you know, the very urgent threat uh, that is both driven in the healthcare domain, you know, by how do we stop a virus from ravaging our country, to how do we care for people, you know, still 30 million Americans that don't have work. How do we care for people who, who are in a very precarious position? And, and all that, of course, feeds into the world that we built in Burnin. And when you start to overlay algorithms, technology. Uh, that has been used for both surveillance, but also kind of economic uh, activity without having had a discussion in a societal sense in the world that we built about the kind of could versus should questions, you can get to a place where you might look around and say, I don't want to live here. And and that's certainly what we're trying to avoid. Uh, and, you know, GoSuite allowed us to have that discussion about let's not be surprised by China's audacity in the Pacific. Let's not be surprised by our own technological hubris. Uh, let's not be surprised by our bureaucracy's inability to deal with great power conflict. And and now with Burn-In, we're hoping to do something similar to say that, you know, we just got yanked into this future and we have to start living in it and not pretend like we're living in the past. One of the things I like most about the, the construct of useful fiction and the way that you and Pete attack it in the novels is that you do deeply research these topics and you show that off with the endnotes. And the endnotes... They don't disrupt the the reading of the the novel at all, right? Because you you are in a thriller and it's a page turner, and you want to know what happens next. But as a reader, when you have questions about a certain technology that you're reading about, and how how real is this, or how far in the future is this, you guys provide a reference to, to something to to show the way that opens the door for people who are curious, and that does accomplish this function of starting conversations and getting people thinking about hard questions and specifically with burn-in those questions about the social contract and you know where we're at with the intersection between government uh, and the economy and kind of bringing to the surface some some of our fundamental assumptions about the society we live in uh, 
And you just mentioned kind of the ethical questions around what we should versus what we could uh, be doing, where that where that technology intersection with politics is is so fascinating. Uh, and Bernin Bernin opens those doors so so well, which is why I think it's a great read for anyone who's interested in these questions, but particularly for students. You know, who, a lot of our our listeners are cadets who have that natural curiosity about questions of politics and economics, the social sciences. Reading a book like this allows you to explore it from a different angle, and it becomes very, very useful fiction. So definitely uh, appreciate what you guys are doing with that, and then how that intersects with the, the current political moment uh, is remarkable. If I could switch directions with you a little bit, I'd ask a question about the potentially more dystopian elements of data and technology where you could read the future of technology as being really scary from either the government front and the powers that government gets, all the information uh, that they have about us. You think about a future version of the Patriot Act being even more robust or scary in some ways, or all the data that we're surrendering surrendering to corporations and corporations being able to you know, take away privacy and maybe even agency as we make decisions. Is, is there one version of the future that we should be more afraid of, a government overreach, or is it the corporations who are going to take control? Uh, how, how do you guys think about that? And how did you bring that into your writing of Burn In? There's one way to look at technology and how it's going to you know, create the, the future that we live in and assume that any progress, of course, carries with it its perils. And I think that's a really smart approach. And at the same time, you know, it's really the people that are the problem. Uh, if you want to say it simply, that, you know, the challenges that, that you're talking about and that we will face and are facing are, are less ones of a discrete breakthrough or innovation and much more about how they are used in ways that reflect the aspects in our societies uh, all around the world that have, I think, revealed flaws in terms of either human behavior or our systemic biases to create narratives that drive division you know, for economic profit, right? You know, the way that a lot of media has evolved into a business model like that, for example. At the same time, I, as somebody who has spent their entire career working in and around technology, you know, my old life as a journalist, you know, which I left a decade ago, but began working in the 90s in San Francisco for an internet startup called marketwatch.com, which was owned by CBS then, uh, later bought by Dow Jones, um, and, and trying to disrupt the news business, you know, from kind of a grassroots, you know, financial news technology driven approach. You know, so I've seen like not only what you can do with technology and, and know how it can produce better models, right, that get more information to more people faster in a more democratic way. You know, in the 90s, if you wanted to say, figure out what was going on in the stock market, you pretty much had to have a Bloomberg terminal or a Reuters terminal. And an average person couldn't afford that. Something like MarketWatch came along and really democratized that. And, and, you know, that's just one narrow example in a very, you know, defined part of like our, you know, society. But that's happened, of course, throughout now. And I want to say that, you know, more people having more voices is a good thing. But we also have to be mindful of what we're saying and why. You know, the, the extension of that, of course, is the algorithmic shaping of the human experience, too. And social media being a platform that's very driven by technologies like AI, so that we're often sharing information that we aren't really even concerned about where it came from because it makes us feel a certain way in doing so or responding to someone else's uh, concepts or ideas allows us to get that almost neurological interaction at a very deep biological level with with data you know which is effectively what what someone's you know inflammatory facebook post is 
And, and I find that really interesting because, you know, the same trend lines that you see in terms of the democratization of force around the world, the idea that you can access, you know, weapons and technology more easily perhaps than ever before. Unmanned systems are a good example. The ad hoc, you know, drone air forces being used in places like Syria are a good example of the inversion of the, the, the air power paradigm. The same thing is happening, of course, in these sorts of tools that are being used to shape uh, the information environment, the cognitive environment, which is, I think, a better way to even talk about it. And that's something I hope that we can think about, not just as something that happens somewhere else, but that's going on right now in our own country. So is that a is that a worse world or a better world? And some of that comes down to agency, right? This idea that I remember having a conversation with someone who works in the Boston technology academic community and being, being you know, wanting, kept wanting to say, you know, we have a choice by where this technology takes us, whether we have a bad future or a good future. And that is subjective, I, of course, I know to say that. My biggest worry is that, you know, the real definition of dystopia is feeling like you don't have a choice in what's being presented to you. Imagine if your whole life was like a, a menu-driven app where you, you can't actually shape, you can't actually reject, you know, you're essentially picking from from a menu. That to me is like hell. Uh, and doesn't allow for creativity or the real kind of, you know, spark of, of human experience. Um, and, and yet we live in a society where I've been saying this for a couple of years and it sounds somewhat tried or even stupid, but like, you know, I, I probably look into my screen more than I do into the eyes of my daughters. And I've been doing that for a long time, just, just by the nature of like the way we work. You know, so, so we're using technology in ways that, that changes human connection. And we also have a generation too. I look at their futures and try to understand how the relationships they have with other people are being shaped by social media algorithms. You know, the way they date, the way they marry, the way they raise their own children will be further uh, shaped by even ever more capable uh, software that is more predictive, that has more information. And, you know, the, the world in Burnin that we describe, you know, Special Agent Laura Keegan, who's hunting for an anti-technology terrorist, and, you know, she is essentially partnered with this robot. And what's unique about that relationship with that robot, robot is the amount of data the robot has access to essentially changes the nature and character of the robot, and therefore the nature of their relationship. And, and that, I think, is a really important thing to always remember, too, that, you know, we will, you know, between, let's say, 2020 and 2040, you know, have have a quite steep hockey stick curve, I think, in access to data. There's all kinds of stats you can pull uh, on that, that that underscore how much data we produce right now that we don't do much with. But as computing power gets cheaper and more distributed you know, to this point about the, the democratization of, of technologies, both destructive and constructive, we're going to have more people taking advantage of that. On, on a, in a utopian sense, maybe that creates economic activity in parts of the economy and sectors where uh, you'll have reductions in employment. You know, are there parts of the services economy, which is crucial in America, that see new businesses being formed? You know, this is the line of reasoning that people who would say those who shod horses were able to find work as auto mechanics or something like that. But I'm not sure the paradigm is that simple, you know, anymore in the 21st century. Given the capability of robotics and AI that we're, we're seeing being developed, it's not so much that you're, you know, leaping from horse-drawn carriages to cars is that you're, you're literally moving two or three generations ahead in technology faster than society can keep up. So, so you know, imagine making that transition over 10 years or making it a one year. And we're kind of in more in that one year phase. You know, even though, for example, there are plenty of signs of how difficult it is to create a more automated society. You know, the, the self-driving car movement is not spreading around our country as, as widely as you would think. Because, you know, we're trying to do really difficult challenges for those that are working on that, right? You know, have cars navigate dense areas, et cetera. At the same time, we're at this point where the invisible aspect of technology that I mentioned earlier is pervasive and spreading far faster. 
whether it's for approving credit scores, whether it's for managing healthcare uh, relationships in the COVID era, uh, whether it's for you know controlling the Zoom calls and and VTCs that we're doing to just create basic economic and educational activity. So so that that aspect is ramping up far faster because again it's software driven, not not hardware driven, and that's something I think that speaks to a potentially optimistic future. But we have to have a really basic conversation about. A, the world we want to live in, B, do we have a choice to shape it, and C, is there something that we can still do to identify ourselves individually in society and yet collectively coalesce around you know, that common vision? Yeah, that brings up a lot of the, the tensions that are really key in burn-in between these potential negative futures with technology or these potential positive futures of technology. And I love that your general orientation is as someone who's writing fiction, who's writing a novel, is that we can imagine different versions of that future, and we must we must at some point have choices. Now, those choices may be limited or may, may not be the full menu of options, but what we do today has some influence on the society uh, we build for the future, and those are intensely political questions that we need to ask ourselves. And I think our, our students uh, as they study introductory political science, it actually really helps them to try and you know surface these big questions and really chew on them and debate them. I think that there is this inclination to think about you know, the techno-optimists where te- technology will get so good that we should be able to solve all our problems, right? But you also bring in so much of um, a, a techno-pessimist perspective where it's, it's not so much that the machines will take over in like the Terminator sense, or they'll become sentient beings and and take out the humans, but more so that we won't observe or know that our agency is being lost or that we we don't have uh, the ability to choose so much as we thought we did. And Burnin brings that to the fore and says, hey, let's talk about this. Let's have a a conversation and meaningfully engage in a debate about what technology means for for our society. And and, and a lot of that's the political questions, but you also do a great job of surfacing surfacing the economic questions, like you said, uh, in terms of the future of work and where we're going, where jobs are going, how they're being created, how they're being destroyed, and and kind of where the, the future of growth will be. There's a really interesting uh, anniversary in 2020, which is the centennial of this play called R.U.R., which is, I believe, a Czech uh, story that essentially used robot for the first time. And it's and it's about a, what what is an autonomous robot's life of servitude, which it rejects and kills its you know master. And I think that narrative is with us, you know, 100 years after it was first you know put on stage. You know, the Terminator is is of course a really good example of that, but there's others as well, uh, Ex Machina. And yet, I think a lot of the discussion, though, in those sorts of monster in the house type type variation stories is, you know, you you lose sight of, to your point, these other really far reaching important changes that those very technologies that we can pack into the bipedal manifestation of like our, our worst nightmare are actually far more diffused. And And, you know, the challenge I think in writing about them is, and, and this is true, I think, in the nonfiction sense, but also in the fictional ones, is how do you get people to connect with these issues? You know, and, and especially if you're, you know, 18 or 19 or 20, you're a cadet and you're looking at these things somewhat abstractly. You're focusing on the world that you're in now, but needing to understand how it's going to be different perhaps sooner than, than, than we think, much as in the same way COVID has ushered in sweeping transformations. A good example is, you know, our character, Agent Keegan, has a husband who is a, like a white shoe lawyer, meaning they worked at a, a very high end law firm. He's a Yale graduate. 
you know, looks like what someone who makes 300, whatever will in the future be more money, but you know, half a million bucks a year or whatever, right. uh, you know, sh- should, and the kind of conventional you know, normative sense. And he's out of a job because an algorithm took away that position. And that is a sort of trend where, you know, we studied dozens and dozens of the forecasts about job replacement by software and, and automation. And that is certainly a part of the economy that has not been part of the discussion. It's typically often used to describe as being a threat to, let's say, a warehouse worker or a fast food worker. And yet, you know, my old business journalist mindset has me thinking about it from like a CEO's point of view. And if a CEO has an employee, they're paying like Jared Geegan's salary of, you know, half a million, million dollars, whatever it is in, in the future, that opportunity to invest $100,000 in an algorithm to save me 900, that's what you're going to do. You're going to worry less about about trying to save money uh, at the lower end. And the services side of the economy, again, which is crucial, not just throughout all aspects of the American uh, economic system, but especially in the middle and upper middle class, those are the people who really bought into the social contract. And that's why a character like Jared is literally drawn from some of the conclusions of uh, these economic forecasts and reports. Because it's important to have, I think, someone who can represent that and allow a reader to understand what, what it's like to actually be affected by that trend line that's being you know, described fairly dispassionately, you know, a white paper or a research paper. And this is really critical, too, because you start to see not only that person's place in the world, but, of course, how they relate to others and, importantly, how they relate to technology. So when Agent Keegan brings her, her robot partner, which is, goes by an acronym called TAMS, uh, home to see the family, essentially, and to kind of give it some context – you know, her husband freaks out. He's like, why are you bringing that here? That's going to take away your job. You know, other examples are how he at the same time is using technology, doing, you know, what's colloquially called turking, you know, working for kind of microtransactions. In this case, he's a home health aide for someone across the country. And, you know, that to me is really representative, too, of some of the trend lines we're seeing, you know, the rise of Fiverr, the rise of platforms that allow, in that case, you know, creative and, and other task oriented professionals to, to engage in economic activity that is below the threshold of what you would if you were like an employee by, by a lot, typically. Uh, Mechanical Turk at Amazon is another example, too, which is something that we, we thought a lot about, especially I, I was taken by Mary Gray's book, uh, which is a research, uh, essentially, project looking at the role of these kinds of turking activities in the kind of foundational creation of data for, for AI programs. And that human aspect is totally overlooked in the conversation about how we understand these technologies and where they really come from. That to me is a classic sort of burn-in example of why we can learn a lot more about the sort of future that we're going toward. From yes, you know, the Terminator is important, I think, for kind of creating a, a base level of conversation and, and widespread awareness, which fiction does well, but making sure that to have it really be useful to really kind of fit into this ficket construct it needs to be well-researched. It needs to have that realism that goes with it. And that's not to say you don't stretch, you know, people's credulity, because I think that's critical too, especially when writing about the future. You want to surprise people. But at the same time, you also need to be able to be sure that when you're doing that, you're resting upon a fairly solid bedrock of research and ideas. And, and in that case, you know, we, we put out this dystopian future, and unfortunately, it is rooted in reality. Yeah, for sure. These are fascinating trend lines to observe, and you guys make them so real while also kind of distract. The story's good enough to distract you from the fact that you're you're dealing with these big questions in the same way. Uh, so hopefully, we will get uh, more people reading these books. I imagine they're so well 
structured to be movies too i don't know what the what, if there there's any talk about that but i'm sure that would be a good way to to uh, get a bigger audience tuned in but then we can we can always the books are better than the movies right i'm i'm one of those people so we'll we'll keep we'll stick with that uh, as we start to close up our our conversation i guess i'd ask for any recommendations you had that are uh, can in this vein other things uh, that people might read I, i'm going to recommend that they read ghost fleet and burn in uh, obviously but you don't you don't have to do that but i, I think you, you know the field really well and you can help us uh, think about creative ways to engage these big problems around political science and economics uh, and imagine possible futures. I think one really good recommendation would be uh, a writer named Matt Gallagher, who's an Army veteran, has a new book called Empire City, which is uh, an alternative view of, it's like alternative history, it's slightly sci-fi, a view of America that has been involved in, you know, kind of a long war that goes back to Vietnam. And it's really like Watchmen meets like the Civ Mill debate. Uh, and it's about these soldiers who have essentially developed extraordinary capabilities uh, and the mystery of how they how they did that, but also what that means for the future of, of not just you know their lives, but the country and how they fit into that narrative about, you know, what is America? It's an excellent book. It just came out uh, a little while ago as well. And, and I'd heartily recommend that. You know, for those who are looking to maybe read more science fiction, there are, gosh, so many books that I think are relevant. There's a, a short story collection by one of my favorite writers and someone I also call a friend, Ken Liu, called The Hidden Girl. And The Hidden Girl is really important, I think, to read because it talks about the essence of the human experience in the age of AI and you know, sentient machines. And it, it, again, it's short stories, which I think is really fun because you can read those in fairly digestible ways and think about them before going on to the next. But many of them are linked together. And as a parent, I find them, especially in this collection, really, really apt because they deal with how essentially you know, virtual personalities and presence infused with AI you know, are going to shape how we relate to one another in families, all wrapped up in big questions of like global conflict and, and things like that. So it's a way to touch upon both these really kind of important issues in terms of future security uh, risks and threats because of artificial intelligence, you know, especially artificial general intelligence, which is close to or exceeding the human kind of capability for creative thought, but but also really never losing sight of that human element, which I think is so important in, in uh, these kinds of, of stories. Um, there's another book that's a good read in a summer sense, but also is a really smart, I think, look at life inside the defense bureaucracy. It's, it's called The Heart of War by Kathleen McInnes. And I think if you read those three books and what time we have left for summer, you would get a great sense of like, you know, alternative past, the present as it is, and, you know, the futures that, that may lie ahead. I think it'd be a really nice uh, way to pair those three. That's fantastic. We'll throw all three of those uh, into the show notes and hopefully get people reading before the the demands of the semester settle in uh, mid-August for us uh, and later for some other folks. Uh, but we really uh, we really appreciate those recommendations. We're really thankful of you spending uh, your time with us and going into a little bit of a deeper discussion on both Ghost Fleet, Burn In, and these big questions that are not only political questions, very much personal questions, very much ethical questions. So there's so many really useful intersections and questions that we should ask ourselves when we when we read these books and, and, and it's an accessible way to start really important conversations. So thank you so much for joining us, August. It was great to talk to you uh, virtually and I hope to see everybody on campus at some point soon. Thanks for listening and get reading. Links to August Cole's books and his recommendations are in the show notes and we look forward to hearing what you think. Since we talk so much about data and algorithms, it's worth noting that we're now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, so please subscribe and rate us so we can keep growing this community. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not reflect the official positions of West Point, the United States Army, or the Department of Defense. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us at socialresearchlab at westpoint.edu to let us know what you think and what you want to hear next. Special thanks as always to the West Point Band for providing our music. <laughs>